Hey, we are coming close to an end of finishing our series called God Made Known. We're going to do three more weeks of this, leading up to even just Palm Sunday. And we're going to end with just this idea of God being immutable. But here's where we're at. We're trying to slow down and just talk about and answer the question of who is God? What is God like? How does God reveal himself to us? We could never truly know God or make God up if God didn't reveal himself to us. God has revealed himself to us. God ultimately revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. But we see that God made himself known in so many different ways through his characteristics, his attributes, who he is, his nature, uh, what he is like. And so we've just been walking through these different attributes of God. So one, we can just better understand the God we love, the God we worship, the God who first loved us, the God we pray to, the God we seek. We want to understand, God, who are you? What do you like? When I pray, what is your heart posture towards me? When I worship, how do you feel about me? And so we've been kind of looking at the, uh, the attributes and characteristics of God, hopefully to paint that better picture. Again, I want to just preface this every week. The fear of this series in some ways is we know about God but still don't know God. The concern is that we have this idea of God, like, yes, I can, I can put God in this theological box, but maybe we still miss out on the person of Jesus. We miss out on intimacy with God, and that we don't want that to happen, but we're hoping this creates like a hunger and desire after intimacy, after relationship, after just deep, meaningful time with God. And so uh, here's what we've done so far, just so you kind of know. First week we did God is, the arguments for God's existence. We looked at how God is triune, the Trinity. So God is, then God is holy, ju- joy, just, love, transcendent, faithful, wise. Last week we talked about God is good, and today we're looking at how God is sovereign. God is sovereign. My mind this week has just been kind of going through it, man, when you, when you study this kind of topic, but I'm very excited to slow down and talk about this. David said in the Psalms, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. God is sovereign. He is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is ultimately the one in control. He plans and performs all that he wants according to his will. We want to look at and talk about how God is sovereign. And when you bring up this topic, there's a lot of questions that come up with this. Um, So I want to try to answer some of those questions to the best of my ability. Uh, This is a topic where people, I mean, there's volumes and volumes of books and commentary and theological books on this, but it is such a beautiful and necessary topic. I pray and hope that brings our hearts to this place of worship. I think that sometimes we can be cynical and say, God, if if you are really sovereign, you have all the power, all the control, you want to act everything according to your will, why do we see so much evil and suffering? Why do we see so much pain and hardship? God, if you're sovereign, why even pray? Why do we even pray? God, if you are sovereign. And so we want to do, I want to do my best to try to answer some of those questions, all right? And so we're going to be in the book of Job. And whenever someone says we're going to be in the book of Job, you know it's going to be a really fun Sunday. Um, <laughs> so why don't we do this? We're going to read a, a big portion of Job. All right, so just get ready for that. Big portion of Job. And then I want to read something out of 1 Timothy, this like benediction or praise or doxology of Paul about God being sovereign. So Job chapter 1. We will start in verse 6. The first five verses, God is just like, Job is righteous, man. Good guy. Has a lot of stuff. Job chapter 1, verse 6. We'll pick up here. It says, just read it with me. Bear with me. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. 
And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered uh, the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went away. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabines fell upon them, your kids, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheet and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, so all these guys are talking to keep getting interrupted by more pain. While he was speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, your kids. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. That's not what I expected. And worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's keep going. <laughs> it's not done yet for Job. Ugh. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So interesting. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I wonder if Job later is like, stop throwing my name out there, please. <laughs> Consider my servant Job. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still, listen, Satan, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life, but, a stretch, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, hon. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want to read Paul's benediction in 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. We'll put it up here. It says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The only sovereign. 
Why don't we pray and just invite God to speak and move us to that. Father, we just thank you. We really need you. We look at this story, we look at suffering, evil, pain, and it really is beyond us. It's one of those things we just look to you, God. Help us see this in light of eternity. God, you are sovereign, and as we've studied the last 10 weeks, you are good, you are faithful, you are holy, you are just. God, that you are kind. We ask that we understand your sovereignty in that light. God, that you'd move and remind us of who you are, remind us of, of who we are in light of who you are. God, we just want to worship you. We do pray as we just sung earlier, be lifted up, be lifted up. Lord, we just thank you again. And we just ask for your direction and clarity. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I don't want to assume, but I think many of us, if not all of us, struggle with a very similar thing, and, and that is that we and I like to be in control. We like to control things. We like to control where we go, what we eat, what we do. Maybe some of you don't, but as soon as the opportunity to choose is taken away from me, trust me, you like being in control. Like, we like being in control. Uh, I like to think I'm in control, but really my wife's in control on almost everything. Uh, but I like to make decisions, but then I'm like, oh, that's actually not what I think. Um, but it's fun to be in control. We like that. We don't want that taken away from us. I mean, and here's the, here's the reality of this thought. We, we like to be in control, and I think the, the longer we live life, we realize how little control we have. Like, we want control, but you go, I really don't have much control here. This is out of my hands. I think parenting reveals that in a great way. We are like, I can try to, you know, watch what they eat, watch what they take in, who they hang out with, but we still have very little control in the outcome. We have very little control in so many things. My daughter, the other day, was in the pool playing, and as she, she like, was, you know, in the pool playing, has her floaty on, she gets out, runs outside really quick, and I'm like, where is she? I'm sitting down outside, and I'm like, well, she's gone, and I go walk out the fence to see her in the backyard. She's running up to me, and I'm like, hey, where were you? And she goes, I wasn't peeing in the grass. <laughs> that's literally what she, that's what she said. And so I get close, I go, did you pee in the grass? She goes, yeah. <laughs> and I love it. I love that she answered. I, I wasn't, that wasn't me. I wasn't doing that. I'm like, I didn't even ask that. That's really weird. You felt that shame. <laughs> like right away, okay. I have very little control where she goes to the bathroom. I just have very little control in general, right? When it, when it comes to life, we just have very little control. It's funny, my, my daughter is three and we have that stage of life where my son plays video games on the weekend. We let him play a little bit here and there and so we give my daughter control and she has the control. She's like, Daddy, I'm playing. I'm like, you're not playing. You just have the controller. It's so cute, right? And I think is that sometimes what life is like. We have the controller, like we're playing and God's like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> you know, you know there, there's, there comes a point where you go, yeah, there's some small things we realize we're not in control. But then when you experience something in a tragic way, you go, wow, we're really not in control. There's so many personal stories we could give. My wife sent me an article, actually. Uh, something that happened this week, maybe you saw this, in West Texas. A 13-year-old was driving with an adult and crossed over the border, uh, the car border kind of thing, and hit an hit a oncoming car, killed seven people in that van. It was like a golf team um, from some, some university. Six of the golfers died. The driver died. The 13-year-old died. The person with the 13-year-old died. So many questions come up around that. Like, why is the 13-year-old dry, driving? What was going on? What happened? What are the details? We look at that and go, what? That's just how six young college lives end? Just driving back from a golf tournament and all of a sudden there's, they're not here? And the parents are just going, what? That's, that's life? It feels like a cruel joke to raise you for 20-something years just for you to be taken away in a second. And I think we can say, like, man, we're not in control. What, how does this make sense? And I think that there has to be a real understanding where I understand why it's, a, it's such a charging question to some people. If God is in control, why, is, why does that happen? Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much suffering? I don't know if we'll fully be able to take it to why. We'll try to do our best in some ways. We're ultimately limited whenever we have to bring up the question why. 
But I think the book of Job does its best to try to explain that or unpack that to us. So I, I do want to look at this because God is sovereign. And what do I mean by that? And what does that look like? And why even pray? Why even do what we do if God is ultimately sovereign? Does it matter? And it does matter, but why? So let's just talk through this, okay? Three points we'll walk through today when it comes to God is sovereign. You guys ready? Uh, first is this. God is sovereign, what that means. God is sovereign, you can trust him. I want to unpack that one. God is sovereign, prayer still changes things. So God is sovereign, what does that mean? Let's just start there. God is sovereign, what that means. The verse I, I pulled from was 1 Timothy 6, where he says, God, you alone are sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. That word for sovereign, because we don't really see it a lot in the Bible. You see the idea of that word, but you don't see that word a lot. It is this word potentate. It, just basically, it basically means like a powerful king, a powerful person. It comes from this word where we might say dynamic power. He's saying, God, you alone have this kind of unique power and authority. But still, what does sovereign mean? It's funny, if you were to research, and I try to get about eight to ten different, whether commentaries and um, just kind of like uh, basically theological books on this topic, and as I'm reading it, there's a lot of, it's kind of similar definition, but also very different. Here's what Mark Jones says. He says, everything that happens in the universe derives from God's will. God freely wills and determines all things. God freely wills and determines all things how God works all things according to his purpose. So God is sovereign. I like how Tozer put it in his book, again, The Attributes of God. He says this, to say that God is sovereign is to say that he is supreme over all things, that there is none above him, that he is absolute Lord over creation. It is to say that his lordship over creation means that there's nothing out of his control, nothing that God hasn't foreseen, and planned. Interesting. There's this idea that, can God do anything? Maybe we, you've heard that, can God do anything? And we go, yeah. I'd say kind of no. This might be one of those questions like, can God do anything? We, we're told in Hebrews 16, 6, 18 that God cannot lie. God cannot sin. The question is kind of a weird question, can God do anything? Uh, the answer is God can do anything according to what he wills. If God wills it, he can do it. God doesn't will to sin. It's not his will. He doesn't desire to sin. He doesn't, he doesn't will to lie. The point is, it's not so much can God do anything. The idea when we put it, God can do anything he wills to do. He is sovereign. He's not the author of sin, but we do see him allow it. What I want to look at is what, Paul, or what Isaiah says in Isaiah 46. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I want to throw some verses out there so you kind of see this big picture. I will, he goes, I will accomplish all my purpose. My counsel's going to stand. I am sovereign. If I have a purpose in mind, it can't be stopped. And so the question is, well, what's God's purpose? There's a few ways you can try to unpack this. We'd say ultimately glory, his glory, that everything ultimately is for the glory of God, and that would be for the good of us. The glory of God would be for the good of us. God being glorified is good for us. And so you'd say, what is his goal here? You could say that we see that ultimately one day, when you read the book of Revelation, you see how it ends. You see God's ultimate goal, that he walks and talks with man and woman again in this garden, but this garden-like city, that we're redeemed, we're restored, we're with God. There's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. When you look at the goal of God, we go, I don't obviously get this, but I know that his purpose will come to pass. His goal will come to pass. 
Nebuchadnezzar, who experienced God being sovereign in a very powerful way. If you know the story of Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar and what he went through and these empires coming about, Nebuchadnezzar said this about God. I thought this was fascinating. Daniel 4.35. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? He is sovereign. Okay, what have you done? Because he, he's just, he is sovereign. Uh, Solomon put it in the Proverbs, he said this way, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is such a bizarre thought to me. The king's heart is in, in God's hands. Like a stream of water, he can just turn it whichever direction. I think we'll see why prayer matters in, in a little bit. But we see how it's, it's just in the, the heart or the hand of God. Here's what I want to look at. There is a difference, a few things I want to compare and contrast because maybe there's confusion. Like, I still don't know what, what does it mean that God is sovereign. There is a difference between God being sovereign and his providence. So, so there is sovereignty and there's the providence of God. Maybe you've heard that word providence. And I want to try to show kind of both definitions to hope, hopefully help you better understand his sovereignty. Uh, but here is the main idea. John Piper says, The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achieve, achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plan into action, guides all things toward his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. One way to put it, we'll kind of compare it again, is God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he declares to do. His sovereignty is his right and his power to do everything he declared or decreed he would do, while God's providence, on the other hand, is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. So it's taking his, his sovereignty and it's putting a, a plan in a sense to it. One way of defining it is wise and purposeful sovereignty. Uh, there are different catechisms that the Christians have kind of put together. It's like a series of questions and answers about doctrinal topics. One is called the Heidelberg uh, chasm, uh, Catechism. And it says this, what do you understand about the providence of God? Answer, here's the providence of God. The almighty, everywhere present power of God whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Again, Ephesians 1.11, Paul speaking of salvation, but also the ultimate purpose of God, it says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. We want to see that his sovereignty is his right and power to do what he decreed. And his providence is to carry that out according to his will. Now, I'm, I kind of compared and contrasted, you know, uh, God being sovereign versus his providence. But then it brings up another question. What about fate versus providence? Because here's the idea. Sometimes people take this and go, wait, so is this like, do you Christians, are they like fatalists? Do we believe that since it's ultimately predetermined, it just things are inevitable? Fatalism kind of teaches, like, it's predetermined, so it's inevitable. It's like, why even try? And it almost brings out this bleak outlook on life. I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about the difference between fate or fatalism and providence. Listen to this. Just Charles Spurgeon in his wit. He goes, this is how he put it. He says, what is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains, must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. It has no great end in mind. There's all the difference between, there's all the difference between fate and providence that there's between a man with good eyes and a blind man. 
We have a man who can see. We can have a man who sees where it's going. It's not blind, like faith. There is a difference, I think, obviously, we're trying to compare. We talk about God being sovereign. We're not talking about fatalism. We're not talking about fate. It's predestined, therefore it's inevitable. We see because there is an end that God has in mind. A goal has in mind. Working according to his purpose, his will. And this is what we want to look at. So, obviously, whenever I bring sovereignty up, and I, the first point, again, remember, sovereignty, what that means, there's a question of, okay, sovereignty versus free will. How do we do this? How do we reconcile these two? So, God is completely sovereign, and does that mean that man has free will? Does that mean that we're able to make decisions? You know, there's kind of two extremes in this, obviously. The first extreme, that God is so completely sovereign, it doesn't matter what you say or do, it's outside of your control. Like, you, you have no, me talking, everything, everything. Basically, it's just outside of your hands. You can't make a decision for yourself. God will trump uh, your will. You want to do this? doesn't matter. God can trump that at any point in time. There's a side that I think that open theists kind of take to this extreme, where it's like we have free will. Therefore, almost God is kind of surprised about the future. God's like, I, I'm not, he's not in control. So the idea is like, you, what you and I does kind of shocks God. God's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea they're going to do that. Kind of have that mindset. I think there's two extremes in this. We say, wow, God in his sovereignty, God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, decided to give you and I the ability to choose. God, in his sovereignty, gave us free will in a, in a limited capacity. Meaning, obviously, when I say limited capacity, meaning uh, I might will, I want to fly, I can't fly. I'm very limited in my, what, I want to, like, what I can execute to do. <laughs> There's certain things I want to do, I can't do. But God is completely sovereign, and he's also given us a free will. And we try to hold these both hand in hand. We try to hold these both together, as difficult as that is, and as much as these conversations go. And, and it's one of those things, let's say, explore this more. It's, like, it's okay to like disagree. It's okay to kind of say, I want to explore this idea of God being completely sovereign and man's free will. I want to do my best to understand it, but we realize that there comes a point in time, like my brain hurts a lot this week after reading a lot about this. And I love this and I enjoy it. And I love the thought of compatibilism and how these things can go together. It, God can be sovereign and we can have free will. I think that's really cool. I think that's great. But it still kind of has some questions kind of hanging. You go, what does that look like? I, I love how Tozer put it. Let me just quote it one more time on this. Listen to this. He says, God Almighty is sovereign, free to do as he pleases. We go, yeah, I can agree. Among the things he is pleased to do is give me freedom to do what I please. <laughs> that's part of his, that's what he pleases to do. And when I do what I please, I am fulfilling the will of God, not c- controverting it, but God, for God in his sovereignty, has sovereignly given me freedom to make a free choice. Even if the choice, listen, this is key, even if the choice I make is not the one God would have made for me, his sovereignty is fulfilled in my making the choice. And I can make the choice because the great sovereign God, who is completely free, said to me, in my sovereign freedom, I bestow a little bit of freedom on you. Now choose you this day whom you'll serve. That's like the only way, I don't know, amen? <laughs> it's hard to, like, let me beat that. Like, I don't think I can. Um, I love what Martin, Luth- Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He talks about the decreative will of God versus the prescriptive will of God. The decreative will of God is if God decrees it, it's going to happen. So God decrees it. God says, I'm coming back. Jesus said, I will come again. Can I tell you this? It doesn't matter how much you pray, Jesus is coming again. You're like, God, don't send Jesus back. I actually don't want to. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Because he decreed it. There is this decreative will of God, and there's a prescriptive will of God. God is like, obey me. I, I prescribe this. I want this for you. This is good for you. But you have the choice. You, obviously, people disobey God. It's not a decree as much as it's prescribing how to live. And so you see the decreative will of God. You see the prescriptive will of God. Again, this is one of those things where I go, man, I, I still have to acknowledge some sort of loss here. Some sort of it should bring me to this place of worship. Like it's beyond me. But God is sovereign. And in these, again, to put it simply, God is in control and we are responsible for our actions. Because ultimately God is allowed and does hold us responsible for our actions. So God is sovereign and at the same time, 
you and I will be held accountable for our decisions. We can't say, but God, you forced me to. No. God in his sovereignty, as Tozer talks about, giving us, giving us the opportunity to say, choose you this day whom you'll serve. One more quote, Mark Jones says, we might think that permission makes God out to be merely an, inter, uh, in, an interested spectator who sits in a watchtower instead of working all things according to his will. But when God permits an evil act, he does, listen, he does so not passively, but actively. God's permission of evil thus involves an indirect act of God's will. Because the idea of his decree or his prescriptive, the idea of God's having like his perfect will that it will come to pass versus maybe a more prescriptive or what we might call at times a permissive will. He's saying that even when evil acts, God was ultimately using that, not that he wants that, but he knows that is ultimately for the benefit of our good. So the question comes up, is God the author of sin? Does, is God, is, did God create sin then? Is God the author of sin? I love what Jonathan Edwards, I think, who's one of the most brilliant men who's ever lived, says about this. He says, if by the author of sin be meant the sinner, the agent, or the actor of sin, or the doer of the wicked thing, it would be reproach and blasphemy to suppose God to be the author of sin. In this sense, I utterly deny God to be the author of sin. Here's the way I want to end this thought. God does not commit sin in willing or allowing that there be sin. God wills and allows it that there be sin but it does not mean that he's committing a sin in that. When we talk about this, there's an element again, we just go, God, this is beyond me. It brings me to a place of worship and surrender. But still, at the same time, it might bring you to a place of bitterness and frustration. It might bring you to this place of, I don't like that. God is sovereign. Look at the pain and suffering that we see. And this brings me to the book of Job. I think Job is this great kind of like cosmic scene where that question of evil and suffering, we get kind of heaven's perspective on it. We get a really unique perspective in the book of Job. And so here's my second point I want to unpack, because if God is sovereign, sometimes it makes us conclude that we can't trust him because look what's going around. Job is, God is sovereign, therefore I can trust him. Job had a different conclusion, I think, than we have today in our modern world. Our modern world is God is sovereign, but look at the pain and suffering that you can't trust him. Job is going, no, no, God is sovereign. He's in control. Therefore, I, I, I do trust him. So Really quick, look at number, number second point as we walk through this. God is sovereign. You can trust him. Uh, Job, we, we kind of know the context, remember? Satan is appearing before God, and it's such an interesting dynamic. He's walking to and fro. Hey, where have you been? I've been walking to and fro. There seems to be some sort of accountability that he has to God. There also seems to be this idea of Satan on a leash to some extent, meaning, um, hey, have you considered Job? Hey, don't touch him to this extent. You can go this far, but not that far. Now, there seems to be some sort of dialogue going on. and goes, hey, consider Job. Job goes through it. He loses his servants, he loses uh, his houses, he loses his commodities, he loses his kids ultimately, he loses everything. And here's what it says in Job 1.21, again, you guys know this well, but he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me just be really clear with this. God's sovereignty reminds us that Satan has been conquered. Because here's what I want to point out, just stay with me. The book of Job basically humiliates Satan from front to end. Because he goes, trust me, God, he will curse you if you take this away. God takes it away. Trust me, God, he will curse you if you just touch his body. Because wouldn't you touch his skin, skin for skin? I mean, once you touch that, he's going to curse you. Doesn't it curse him again? From basically the beginning to the end, Satan's humiliated by his idea or thought of suffering and how it will play out in humanity. God is, basically the question is, who's going to be right? Like, who's going who's gonna to win? Imagine this. Job, I want to point this out. Job didn't have the book of Job to read. Like, right? Like, you understand. Job's not like, okay, oh, there's a cosmic thing going on between Satan and God. Okay, cool. Like, he doesn't have that. <laughs> He's not able to look at that in that way. Like, he doesn't have heaven's vantage point. It's very interesting that you and I get heaven's vantage point into Job's suffering. 
kind of like, come on, come on, look at what's happening in heaven. Joe doesn't get this. It's almost like after everything he loses, this, the angels, the angels like imagine going, what is he going to do? And all of this, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say the Lord gave and Satan took away. He actually still acknowledges God's sovereignty in that. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. Because again, ultimately he knows, God, you're sovereign, you're good, you're in control. This is so different. Job had a unique perspective, obviously. But I think we're seeing that Satan, he's reminding us in this book, Satan, you want us to turn our back on God, laugh at God. In reality, we're going to read this book and laugh at you. In reality, you're humiliated, not man. In reality, you're humiliated, not God. The world wants God to be humiliated. Satan wants God to be humiliated. That's not how we see it. It happens with Job. Satan's humiliating this. His premise, his theory, was completely wrong. It was off. Here, here is an idea. Ultimately, as we study this, ultimately tragedy on earth can truly only be understood from the perspective of heaven. Because we're seeing heaven's perspective in a Job's suffering. And obviously, us, like, we don't get it ever when we're going through it. We might not ever get it in this life either. But when you do look back, you say, wow, this can only be understood from the perspective of heaven. This tragedy and suffering. See, Job had this mindset, since God is, suffer- since God is sovereign, I can trust him. Job concludes in Job 42, actually, notice how Job notices God's sovereignty in this. He ends it, Job 42, by saying, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He acknowledges God, nothing can thwart your plan. God, I acknowledge that you're sovereign in this. Again, we, we know the ending of Job. Job did not know the ending. But ultimately, we see that Satan is humiliated. Ultimately, we see that Satan is defeated and heaven conquers. And that our perspective of suffering does not make sense in the moment. When you read the, these, they're like, almost through the 38 chapters, you're like, uh, this does not make sense. This dialogue, trying to figure out why there's suffering between Job and his friends, it's painful even to read. But you're, we're going to go, how does this end? How does this conclude? And we say, okay, from heaven's perspective, it's starting to make a little bit more sense. But here's the idea. Trusting God, here's what I learned from Job. Trusting God has nothing to do with our circumstances. This is what Job knew. This is beyond me. We think my circumstances show or reveal that God is trustworthy or not. If circumstances are good, God is trustworthy. If circumstances are bad, God is not trustworthy. That's not how Job seen it. That's not how Job saw it. Job says this in Job chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to this, remember? Uh, it says, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, so again, remember, everything's taken from, away from him. Satan took away everything but his wife, which is just funny and ironic to me. It's just because he said, curse God and die. And he's like, really? Um, but Job asked a phenomenal question. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He's basically saying, trusting God has nothing to do with my circumstance. So you're willing to trust God when things are good, but you're not willing to trust God when things are bad. Anyone can trust God when things are good. It's a different person who can trust God when things are not ideal. See, trusting God has nothing to do with our circumstances. Job said something so profound in Job 13, 15. Job, after suffering and talking to his friends, he goes, listen, like, friends, though God slay me, yet I will trust him. I am not there yet. But that is one of the most beautiful statements I trust him. Though he slay me, God, I'm going to trust you. This is what happens. I trust him. Shall we receive good and not evil? We receive good all the time from God. We talked about that last week. God is good. Because shall we not receive evil? Though he slay me, I'll trust him. He says in Job 23.10, but he knows the way I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. 
he knows the way I've taken it, and he knows that when he's done testing me, I'm going to come forth as gold. I'm going to come forth and be pure. You guys know the whole analogy of gold being purified, and you heat up gold really hot, and then the dross or the impurities come to the top, and you scoop out the impurities until the gold's refined more and more and more. And the whole idea is that gold needs to be heated up for the impurities to come to the top. And once it's heated, it can become more pure. And the idea is like, God, you're heating up my life. It's hard. The impurities are coming to the surface. Purify me. He knows that when he's tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I shall come forth more pure in this. God, you're doing something. I see this. Again, Job had a really unique perspective. He trusts God despite his circumstances. Here, let me say it this way, number, number the third thought in this, but trusting God means you have the right perspective. Trusting God means you have the right perspective in all of this. Job had a really powerful perspective. Obviously, he knew God was sovereign. He ends that in Job 42, as I read. But he had a really unique perspective, and here's why I think actually separated Job from anyone else who would have suffered. I really think this is one of the key phrases or verses or thoughts or concepts or ideas in the book of Job. But it's Job chapter 19. We'll throw this up here, verse 25. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job had some phenomenal theology (laughs) without even knowing, like, Job goes, here's what I know. I know, I don't know suffering. I don't get it. Why? I can't answer that. But I know my Redeemer lives, you see, I don't understand evil and suffering. I don't. I don't fully understand it. I'm very limited in that. Why? I, I don't know. But I know my Redeemer lives. Do we get that? I don't know why there's so much pain and evil. So I don't know why that kid crossed over and killed seven people. That, I don't know. I don't know. But I know my Redeemer lives. I know that even when my body is destroyed, in this same body, I will see God. He, he knows resurrection. I know resurrection. I will see him. My eye shall see him, not another. It's going to be me. I'm going to see him. How my heart yearns within me. What, I mean, Job's perspective is unbelievable. You know, when I was a youth pastor, uh, about seven or eight years ago, um, like early on, I remember we got a phone call from this family. said, hey, there's this little boy. It's, it's like December. It's like early December. Can you come over, pray with him? He has cancer. We just want to have some pastors come over and pray with him. Never met this little boy. His name is Matt. I, we go to his house with a couple other guys, and basically the family was holding like a Christmas day because they didn't know if he'd make it to Christmas. So he had a, he actually had a, Matt had a brain tumor. At 14 years old, he was playing hockey. He got hit in the head. He goes to the hospital because they thought he had a concussion, which he did, but he goes to the hospital and as they're examining his head, they find out not just a concussion, but you have have a brain tumor. It's a pretty serious one. So here's this kid who's playing sports, happy, no idea he's sick, gets hit in the head, goes to the doctor, finds he has a brain tumor. I think they gave him less than six months to live. They said, hey, can you come over? We're at his house. His face is very swollen from the tumor, from the medication, from different things. We're there, and he thinks it's Christmas morning. And he's so happy that we're there. He's like, so happy we're there. We're just sitting there. We're, we had a buddy come play worship. And we just have the family talk to him and ask him questions. And everyone's kind of asking him different things. And I just remember, like, so Matt, do you know that Jesus is the resurrection of life? He goes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus rose again for you? I do. I said, do you believe that you'll see Jesus one day? I do. And it's this mindset of, hey, Matt, you, you know your Redeemer lives and you know you will see him. And he had such a beautiful perspective. I'm watching him hold his sister's hand as he's talking about this. I watched him just have such a beautiful perspective of, I know, he knew he's about to die. He passed away that January. He knew he's about, he knew he's about to die, but yet he knew his Redeemer lived and he knew he'd see the Lord. And I'll, I was sitting there going to God, I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't get why there's a 14-year-old who has so much joy, so much hope, so much beauty about him, but I know that he knew his Redeemer lives. 
He knew that if he were to breathe his last, he would see Jesus. Suffering and evil does not make sense to me, but here's what we can say. I know my Redeemer lives. When Jesus said, I'm the resurrection, the life, and if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live, do you believe this? And he asked the question, do you believe this? Yes, I believe this. Awesome. You know your Redeemer lives. You'll see him for yourself, not another. It's hard when you talk about this idea of God being sovereign. This is one of the worst answers you can give when someone's suffering. Never say this. Suffering, you go, God's sovereign. Don't do that. They need to know their Redeemer lives. This is what they need to see and know. They need to taste and see it in this way. I, I don't fully get it. I don't. I love how Tim Keller put it about this idea. He says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have a good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. There's just a side of it. Like, hey, God. I know, I don't trust you in this. We are saving sovereignty towards the end of this because we need to see the sovereignty of, of light of, of what we talked about the last 10 weeks, that he is good, he is faithful, he is just, he is holy, he is immense, he is infinite. Like, we need to see it in light of everything we've talked about. Because it plays into, not just he's sovereign, but he's, he's a good, sovereign, loving king. And we need to see it in that way, in that light. Another thought. What, how the book of Job ends is to me the greatest conclusion to pain and suffering and evil. Because here's how. We know the first like, 37 chapters. It's just awful and back and forth between him and his friends. And here's what's interesting. There's a lot of questions raised about God and suffering and evil. Job is doing pretty good. But then he starts kind of getting, you know, like, yeah, why, why am I? What's, what about, what's going on here? And here's what happens. In Job 38, and Job 38 and Job 39, God now has questions for Job. God's like, I know you have questions for me. But if you get to Job 38 and 39, there's 64 questions God asks Job. God's like, I have questions for you now. 64 questions. God's like, where were you when the heavens were made? Right? So God starts going through his questions. And it's interesting because all of that to say, God's saying, hey, Job, I know you want an explanation from me, but that's not going to satisfy you. If you were given and I were given an explanation on suffering and evil, I don't think we would be happy with it. So God doesn't give Job an explanation. God basically just reveals himself to Job. God gives him a revelation of himself. And this is the most profound thing in suffering. So often we want an explanation, and God's like, that's not going to satisfy you. What you need in this moment in time is not an explanation, but a revelation of me. Who am I? Consider me. Consider the work of my hands. Consider what, I, what I've done. You want an explanation, but in reality, you need a revelation of God. And I think this is the greatest answer to suffering. It's not so much an explanation, but a revelation of God. There's something about suffering, and you go, oh, God, I see you in a, do, a new light. I, I see you in, in a greater light. I maybe had a minimal view of you, and now I see there's no one like you. So Job wanted an explanation, but he got something better than an explanation. God can offer something better than an explanation. <laughs> and that's really important. Because I, I don't think we have a good one. And I don't think we'd understand it. And I don't think we'd enjoy it. But we have a revelation from God. God's like, you need to know me. And that's why Job in Job 42 says, I've heard about you by the scene of the ear, but now that my eye sees you, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He's like, I've heard about you, but now that I see you, now that I have a revelation of you, God, I just repent. I see you for who you are, now I see me. God, you are so beyond me, so, God, you're so good. And I repent in dust and ashes. You see, God, Job got a revelation, not an explanation. Listen, here's also how we see the book ends. Um, I believe God is trustworthy because he finishes what he starts. Ultimately, we see God bring amazing redemption. And I want to acknowledge, it doesn't take away the pain of losing his kids, 
But let me just read this in Job 42, verse 10. It says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And it goes on and talks about all the things that Job had in the first five verses, Job 1 through 1 through 5, and it shows a double of that. He, gave, he truly gave Job twice as much, but yet when it came to his kids, he doesn't double his kids. He had 10 kids. God gives him 10 more kids. I think the idea is because he didn't double his kids because he still had his kids. They're just in heaven. He still had his kids. They're just in paradise. He had tw- 10. He doesn't get 20 at the end. He got, he got double everything else, but his kids, he just got 10 more because his kids were with God. Not that that satisfies the answer, but God's like, I'm going to do double. I'm going to give you double what, what happened here. Here, here's the idea. I do believe God ultimately turns our tragedies into these great victories, and God is trustworthy because he does finish what he starts. And here's the idea from the lens of the cross. When you look at the idea of the cross, you go, what, what, this is the greatest tragedy known to man. Jesus, the Messiah. I mean, the one who's loving people, saving people, feeding people, helping people. We see that God and Satan had the same goal, which is what? Death. Death of Jesus. But they had a different motive and reason for that. A different, completely different motive and reason. One was to lose hope, one was to restore hope and bring redemption. Same goal, death of Jesus, but different motive behind that. And this great tragedy turned into this great victory. And again, suffering will never make sense without the lens of the cross. It'll never make sense. You think about going to a museum, and if you've been to like a nice, fancy museum, there's like benches everywhere. And it's always funny to me, because like I'm like antsy, I just like want to keep walking. But they just like sit and stare, and like shut up, just sit there. There's like benches everywhere, like sit, sit and look at that painting. Then I always look at people sitting, I'm like, what are they looking at? Like, what do, you, what do you see that I don't see? But they're sitting there, and they're looking. And I think here's what we got to do as Christians sometimes. When there's suffering, when there's pain, when there's evil, just sit at that bench and stare at the cross. And I don't know, I don't know. Something just happens when you're kind of going, I'm looking at the cross and Jesus' suffering, it's starting to make a little bit more sense to me. And I, it's like, what, explain that. Just, I, no, you need to sit and stare. Like, you need to have that. You sit and stare at the cross, and it starts to make a little bit more sense. You start to go, oh my gosh, God, you're not immune to suffering. You took on suffering, you took on evil. Wow. Wait, you embraced evil? You took the pain of it, the whole, the whole gamut of suffering and pain and evil? You took it one moment? Wow. God is sovereign. You can trust him. That's what Job knew. Shall receive good, but not evil? He's saying, no, though he slay me, I'll trust him. This is completely different. I, I don't get it. I don't want to have to learn this the hard way. All of us will suffer. It's inevitable. This is a book where it's like, it's inevitable. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience loss. You're going to experience tragedy. I don't have the story of, like, of Josiah from heaven's perspective. Job didn't have his story. <laughs> I just have to read this and go, wow, Satan's humiliated, and I know he has been, and he will continue to be humiliated. And ultimately, we'll see God go, yes, I won. <laughs> I, I just think that we need to see heaven's perspective in this. I, I think that it's so beautiful when you see that Satan's head is stomped on, and Jesus wins, and he's ultimately humiliated. And we say, wow, this makes more sense at the foot of the cross than anything else. Now, here's the last point. God is sovereign. Prayer still changes things. As much as you're like, but God, if you're sovereign, you're going to do what you want to do. Why, do I, why even pray? Like, I get, I get that question. Like, why even pray? Because God says to pray. Let me just start there. It's like, why should I, when people are like, why should we pray? Because it's commanded a lot to pray. Let me just start there. And if God commands it, it's probably necessary. So before I even try to give some good reasons for that, let me just say this. God's like, pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray always. Why should I pray? Because God says to. That should, that should be enough. But I know it's not enough for most of us. That should be enough. Look at Job 42, uh, verse 10 again. Here's what it says, that phrase. The Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Would he have before? I, I don't know, but it's just when he prayed. Just pray. He restored it when? When he prayed. I don't get this. I don't get this dynamic thing in heaven, like Daniel 10 brings up this idea of Daniel's prayer and fasting for 21 days, and then this angel's released to help Daniel. Would he release, release it? I don't think so. Would, would Daniel have been helped if he didn't pray and fast for 21 days? I don't think so. 
I know that prayer and fasting truly changed things in Daniel. I know prayer changed things for Job. I know prayer changed things for the early church. It's when they prayed, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. It's when they're praying, Peter is released from prison. It's when they're praying, the Holy Spirit just falls on so many different people in so many different ways. It's when people come back to life when they're praying. All I know is that prayer does change things. Does prayer change the mind of God? It changes things. It's so difficult. I think God in his mind and his will, he's like, yeah, because when we're joining in prayer, it's like, this is actually my will. I want it, my will is part of, my, part of my will is that you pray. And when you pray, I respond. And that is still under God's sovereign will. That's unbelievable. So he invites us into prayer. It seems as if God wouldn't do some things if we didn't pray. So we should pray. I mean, that's just very clear. What does James say? You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask amiss. Spend it on your pleasures. He says later in James 5, Basically, the, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man reveals much. I love how the ESV puts it, but it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, as it is working. Again, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He gives a, an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for a sake of judgment for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Even when he prayed for rain to come back, you know that story. He's like praying, looking up, praying, looking up, praying, looking up. Like, did it work yet? Did it work yet? What a beautiful posture. Did it work yet? He didn't give up. Seven times he prays. He goes, I see like a cloud the size of a hand. That's good enough for me. I'm done. Like, what? That's it? Yeah. God answered my prayer. It's like the size of a hand. Yeah, it's going to be bigger. I, I just, it's amazing. He's praying and looking up. God, we're, I'm looking up. It's so beautiful when you see the church praying, praying, praying. And you go, wait, salvation happens? Yeah. I, do, I don't get it. The book of Acts talks about if perhaps God might grant some repentance. I think prayer, God grant them repentance. You ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5, 14. I don't, pray according to his will. Pray. Does it work? Yeah, it works. Change God's mind? Changes things. <laughs> I would say, let's take this in. We need to pray. We need to pray. And so you have on your chair a prayer card. Because we want to pray for people specifically. Here's what we're going to ask. We're going to ask that you just spend uh, some time right now thinking, praying, and pray for people you want to see come to know Jesus. If this is a family member, a friend, or parent, not here, not in the state, great. If this is a, f- a childhood friend you've grown up for years, great. If this is a next-door neighbor that you finally learned their name and you want to pray for them, they get saved, great. Uh, here's what I'd ask. I'd ask you to be praying over these names the next four weeks. We have four weeks till Easter. Take this card, place it in your Bible, be praying. Look at this. Look at God, I'm going to pray for these names. I'm going to pray specifically. I'm going to pray and look up. It is so beautiful when you pray for people and you go, wait, it worked? They got saved? Like, yeah, they got saved. Like, wait, prayer does work? Like, yeah, it does work. Isn't that weird? <laughs> like, who would have known? It, it works. It really works. So we're going to pray. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship a little bit right now. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'm going to ask that you write down some names. As you're about to do this, just stay with me. Look at me really for a second. There is this idea of God being sovereign, and this is why we actually pray. It's not God is sovereign, therefore we shouldn't pray. It's actually God is sovereign, therefore that's why we pray. It's the reason we do pray, because he is sovereign. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, the very reason we pray is because of God's sovereignty, because we believe that God has it within his power to order things according to his purpose. That's why we pray, not why we don't pray. We pray because he is sovereign. That's not why we avoid prayer. That's why we do pray. Amen? So we want to pray according to his purpose, according to his will. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn this into a house of prayer and worship. Would you write down a few names? Would you take that with you the next four weeks? Would you, the week before Easter, say, I've been praying for you, and you have been, don't lie. I've been praying for you, and I want to invite you to church. I want to invite you to hear the good news of Jesus and do that. We just want to pray. What's worse? They say, no? Okay, keep praying. Does it end with this four weeks? Let's just be praying right now. 
I think we have not because we ask not. We have not because we ask amiss. Let's pray. Let's sow the seeds of prayer now and re- reap the fruit of it in God's time. Amen? Can I pray for you? And then we'll, we'll worship. Take some time to pray yourself, to write names down. But let's pray it now. Father, we just want to thank you that there is no one like you. God, that you are sovereign, that you are good. That though I don't get it, yet we will trust you. We need you, Lord. We look to you. We just want to praise you. God, that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, that you alone are sovereign. And so, God, we just want to pray to you, seek you. God, I ask that you would save. God, for me, my family members, my friends, my neighbors, the people you have known from the foundation of this world who we yet have not yet seen come to believe in you. We pray that you'd open their eyes. You'd grant them repentance. God, that you'd bring many to you, Jesus. God, for people in this room who have not yet believed on you, Jesus, that you'd grant them repentance, that they'd believe on you, that surrender to this truth, God, that you suffered for them on their behalf, that you died for them, for their sins, that Jesus, you were slain, therefore I trust you. You were slain. So we trust you, God. We look to you. We want to praise you and ask that you just continue to move that we're not done yet, that we ask that your spirit be at work in our lives and our hearts, that you bring people to our mind even after today, bring people to our heart and mind, and that we just call upon the name of the Lord. Job prayed for his kids. God, and we believe that you are so faithful to answer his, his prayers. We want to pray for those who don't know you, have not yet believed on you. So we look to you, Jesus, in your precious name. If you guys want, you can stand. If you want to sit down and write some names down and pray with them, you can. Let's just turn this into a time of prayer and worship.